Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time-poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined once again by Christopher Such. Hello, good to be back. And together, we'll try and answer the question, how do you solve a problem like supporting early career teachers? But first, Chris, what's your reading for? Uh, well, this week, I'm not going to lie, I've not finished this book, but I've dived into it. It's really interesting. And it's a book called History of Knowledge by Charles Van Doren. Uh, those people who are familiar with the book will perhaps think, well, what's this got to do with primary education? It's effectively um, an attempt to spell out an overview of um, world history. Um, the author would describe in perhaps slightly problematic terms as Western history, but it does attempt to spell out the history of the entire world to some extent. And it's only when I've read this book and similar books like E.H. Gombrich's um, A Little History of the World that I realised that it isn't only valuable for people who are developing a curriculum or looking to develop their history curriculum. I think it's a really valuable thing for any primary teacher. I think going into teaching primary school without that and a sense of an overview of world history and trying to teach history and perhaps even geography and other bits and pieces without that overview puts you at a really major disadvantage. Love it as a book and I'd highly recommend it. I've also, and I, I'm breaking the rule a little bit here by mentioning the second thing, I've also been uh, reading some bits and pieces about reading fluency, um, specifically catching up with a couple of uh, meta-analysis, uh, sorry, meta-analyses, I guess, and some work by Tim Rosinski. Uh, in particular, fascinated by his idea that when teachers teach children um, to read fluently and teach fluency practice sessions, that they should focus almost entirely on texts that can be performed. Um, I see where he's coming from. The research that he done, he has done seems to point that way. But when I relate it back to my own personal experience, the more I think about children who, when it comes to reading fluency, are really rubbish with use, the use of punctuation. And I think this could be problematic if a lot of the reading instruction you do, um, particularly for fluency, involves texts where punctuation is a little bit of a free-for-all, like poetry can tend to be. So, yeah, that's what I've been reading. That's what I've been reflecting on. Both really, um, for me at least, fant fantastic stuff to read. I'd highly recommend History of Knowledge by Charles Van Doren for those looking for an overview of world history. What about you? You've been tucking into anything new? Yes, quite a bit. Um, in, in terms of academic stuff, I've been reading about Marx and Nietzsche, and um, so I don't think I'll bore anybody with, uh, <laughs> with that. But um, and I think we talk about this book quite a lot on the podcast, um, The Walkthroughs by Tom Sherrington and Ollie Kev. Um, and because we're talking about early career teachers, I've actually been working with someone who is in their first year of teaching, but their time was disrupted um, because of COVID and things. And so I've been doing a lot of work trying to support their professional development. And actually, in terms of having a codified vision for what the essentials of practice are, um, I think that, you, you know, you can't get much better than the walkthroughs. You know, I'm very excited to see that there's a, a volume two coming out soon. But really, um, I think schools would be mad not to um, at least have copies in the staff room, you know, but certainly making a part of CPD because it just breaks down those essentials really, really well. And I remember reading it way back in, must have been April 2020, the first time, and thinking about how succinctly things are put um, and things that I've been doing, 
but never really thought about and um, were almost given given a title and sort of explained in, in quite minute detail which is it. yeah so it's 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 a quick read but there's lots of value um, from the fact that you can work with um, other teachers and support them using and um, what is a really high quality text essentially yeah i think the pitch of it is fantastic as well for i learned bits and pieces from it um, and I was reminded of useful bits and pieces from it when I looked at it about, I'd say, six months or so ago. But what you notice about it straight away is how accessible it would be for any teacher. I mentioned my partner a lot. She's a secondary maths teacher. She's currently a mentor for a Teach First candidate. And the first thing I said to her was, get her that book. Just both of you get a copy of that book. Use it as a way to discuss practice. Use it a way to, as a way to label bits of practice that um, you think she needs to improve on. And um, they've both found it incredibly useful. It is a great book. Yeah, I'm, you know, thinking about your your first recommendation, and I think you get to a point in your career where once you've heard the main messages, you know, and you have almost got the essentials down, it's about reading around teaching and and that's the way to get the most leverage in your practice you know for instance neil almond recommended uh, map the map of knowledge you know seven cities and you know sort of marking what we what we consider to be the main the main canon of knowledge we have you know right from sort of in the middle east in fifth century maybe even earlier than that and all the way up to the enlightenment and then i think it's things like that where you can start taking your experience in the classroom and tying it to things that you're reading, you know, in a, in a much broader sense. That uh, it's a really useful way and almost like a, a state of being. You know, once you've gone past the the essentials, it's about you know reading mathematical texts for the inspiration they can provide you. You know, so I think that's a really good recommendation. And, yeah. and obviously, you've recommended the uh, the 900 page book on Europe. On the history of Europe, is it is it only nine hundred? Oh, what is what? I'm, I can't remember the name of the author. We'll put it in the show notes. But Europe by can't remember his name. Worth it just for the little vignettes he puts in there. Norman Davies. It's it's it is a doorstop of a book, but it's well worth your time. I, it's one of these ones that I need to go back to and read probably four or five times, and I'm almost certain I won't um, in my lifetime. But it's exceptional. Yeah, I'm going to concentrate on reading it once, <laughs> three pages at a time. <laughs> so then that leads us on to the the main bulk of this podcast. And how do you solve a problem like supporting early career teachers? And suppose the first question is, what was your NQT, NQT plus one time like? I, I, in some ways, I think I can provide um, a story that is worryingly typical for the education profession. What I remember from my first two years of teaching um, was that I worked far too long hours. I think it, it probably clocked at 55, 60 hours a week comfortably. The head teacher, the my mentor in my NQT, et cetera, knew I was working those hours. Um, and I don't think they thought of it as much of a problem. They just saw it as part of the course, NQT, NQT year and NQT plus one year is hard. So suck it up. I remember it being um, exceptionally bureaucratic. I mean, this is 13 or so, no, 12, 12-ish years ago, I think, if I'm trying to pin it down. So I remember APP grids. I remember long lists of things to tick off. I, re I remember organising football matches and having spending 45 
45 minutes on the risk assessment and then another 45 minutes putting up these plastic goals and taking them down again. I remember having some struggles with behavior. The teachers at the time constantly said to me, don't worry about behavior. We've, we're observing your lessons. We've walked past. You're fine. But it doesn't matter what it feels like to other people. If it feels like to you that behavior is a struggle, it still has an impact. The interesting thing is that it was such a lot, it was such a slog for me those first two years. And I was working 55 or 60 ish hours a week. I had to bike to and from school because at the time I didn't want to own a car. In the end, it was just so overwhelming that I remember getting to the, I'm trying to think when the resignation deadline is, whether it's the end of May or the end of June. But either way, I remember thinking that. I could possibly make it through my third year, but because of the length of that resignation deadline, I, c I can't commit to that period of time. I, three months from now, I could be broken. So handed in my notice, and it was a couple of days before the resignation deadline, and I remember the head teacher saying things like, we know you've been working long hours. We can do something about that. We know that, and it's, it was too late. At that point, I just thought, well, if you know I'm working 55 or 60 hours a week, why have you ha waited until I'm leaving the profession or, or till I felt like I was leaving the profession? As it turned out, I got a job as an HLTA and then found my way back into education because, or as a t back into teaching because I missed it. But it was just, I was very nearly one of those annoyingly high number of teachers that get in and then leave because it's just not worth, the, you're not worth the effort. The really interesting thing as well is that I thought I hated teaching while I was doing it for 55 or 60 hours a week. Once I was eventually able to do it for 40 or 45 hours a week with a bit of admin on top, I loved it. That difference, that 10, 15 hours is the, can be the difference between you loving a job and hating a job, even if you're doing pretty much exactly the same things with your time. What about you? I'm, I'm, I'm sure yours perhaps wasn't quite so bonkers as that, but uh, what was your NQT and NQT plus one uh, years like? And I'm having flashbacks whenever you're mentioning all that stuff. And I, I never resolutely said I was going to leave the profession, but it, it was probably, you know, two or three of the hardest years um, I've ever experienced. You know, I don't think I helped myself in the fact that straight out of university, I moved to the southeast of England. And, and that in itself is quite, uh, you know, even though we all speak English and stuff, it, it's still a culture shock. You know, things are just different here. And with the feeling of not being very good at anything. And um, like you said, the behavior is not good. The plan is not good. You know, you know, even I wasn't very good at waking up on time. And, you know, it was, it was just, you know, a real, it was a big difference to anything I'd ever experienced. And it gets to you because you're sitting thinking, is this for me? You know, something you've decided you're going to do from, you know, no age, you know, 10 years old, I think I was. Um, and then you're really having to think, you know, especially at the time that we we sort of came through, you know, like you said, with APP, with Ofsted expecting a certain dance, and, you know, that made life particularly difficult for teachers. And, and I said in Shannon's episode that I had a superb mentor, um, and our head teacher was superb at the time too. I mean, I, I was at my first school for seven, eight years, and they kept as much of that from us as possible, you know, so that we could focus on being the best teacher that we could be. But that doesn't make it any easier. And it doesn't mean you don't want to be better than you are. And so I, I remember that perpetually wanting to be better and perpetually want to feel like I was doing a good job. But I, and I think it was year four. Um, and at this point, I was starting to support other teachers. 
um, you know, properly. You know, I think I dabbled a bit in year three, but it was really only in year four when I thought, right, I've, I've got most of the nuts and bolts down. Um, and I thought, actually, yeah, I might, I might just make it um, as a teacher after all, you know, because like you say, you know, there's so much to get on board with and so much to get your head around that I, I can't imagine it being clear cut for anyone. Um, and I don't know if that's an issue with the system or if it's the fact that the job or the role is so cognitively demanding, you know, and there are, there are so many facets to it. Um, but yeah, but everything you said rings, you know, experience to me. And obviously we've had lots of conversations with other teachers um, on this podcast and, they, and they've had very similar stories. Um, but I just don't know. So in, in my actions, I try to make life as straightforward, you know, just like my mentor did for me, for all the teachers I am sort of lucky enough to support, you know, so how can I take all the focus away from, and so that the only thing you're thinking about is teaching and learning and behavior to an extent. I think one of the things, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense um, that I think that's a, a really important part of any approach to support in any early career teacher. I remember what a difference this, that sense of judgment made to me. I remember I was observed for the first time as an NQT. I was observed all the time. First time, and it, it was always with an Ofsted rating. And I remember someone saying, oh, this is good, or this is this bit's outstanding, or whatever. And I remember at some point, I wanted to really, I, I wanted to get an outstanding lesson um, pretty early, get it under my belt, show them what I could do. Ridiculous attitude in retrospect. But I, I, I put together an outstanding, what they described as an outstanding lesson. Um, and we sat down afterwards and we went through the Ofsted framework that they'd put together or they'd matched against the Ofsted framework and we ticked bits. And I remember getting to end that lesson and sitting down, got my, got my feedback. And it was something that had taken me seven or eight hours of preparation minimum. And the person who watched me teach that must have known from what I'd done. I mean, I dressed up. There was a typewriter in the room. There were seven or eight different ways that children can, could interact with the knowledge that I was trying to deliver about D-Day, if I remember correctly. And the most damaging thing that ever happened probably in my um, those uh, early bit of teaching was my mentor saying, that's what you can do. When in, when in retrospect, that's not what anyone can do, not on a consistent basis. Uh, and I, I wasn't yet in the frame of mind. I wasn't mature enough yet to know that what they really meant was, that's what we want you to prepare when Ofsted come. And the rest of your teaching is can be normal. I, I had They never really were that honest with me. And so I found myself trying to produce these outstanding all singing or dancing lessons far too often. And yeah, in the end, it broke my motivation. It broke uh, my desire to teach. Uh, and that's uh, never a good thing, obviously. So yeah, any people out there support, who want to support NQTs, perhaps the idea of judging them either positively or negatively is a bad idea. Even saying to them, oh, this is outstanding, is, it's, it's, it can be as counterproductive as saying something is inadequate, I think. Yeah, and I think it, it even already we've gone back to the walkthroughs and the fact that you are referencing a specific action or way of behaving in the classroom and it's free from judgment because it's either a case of this is something that we do as part of our practice or this is something that we can improve you know and I think probably we can always improve things but this is something we want to improve right now this is our focus and because I remember when it was okay to be good all the time and that was considered outstanding it was almost like a 
a wave went over the, the profession because instead of, as you say, having to be outstanding on that day, whenever they happen to pop into a lesson, you could just do a solid job all the time and schools could do a solid job all the time. And, and that would be, you know, not sufficient because obviously they took words like satisfactory and made them into something less than satisfactory. But, uh, you know, it, it, it was it was accepted that that was a realistic aim for for the profession was to be good every single or as many days as possible you know and i think realistic is the key word there because my nqt year expectations of myself um and the language that was used were completely unrealistic there was this idea that someone can be an outstanding teacher all the time and also early in their career which is which is rubbish. But I guess that brings us on to our second question, um, which I'm going to fire at you, if I may. What would you tell your NQT self, however many years ago that was, if you had the time machine and that was the way you had decided to use it? Not the most wise use of a time machine, but if you were going to use it that way, what would you tell yourself? There are a few ways I've interpreted this. So if if you'll allow me to give a few possible answers. Um, I think one of the key things that I didn't realize was that my working memory wasn't as effective as I thought it was. So I spent quite a lot of time not writing stuff down. Um, And if it doesn't get written down, it gets forgotten. And so I would tell me on day one, make sure you write absolutely everything down because then you have a point of reference which to go back to. Because I think on top of learning a new role and learning a new almost not, not skill, um, but learning to teach, if some of the things you're not doing are easily avoidable, like not forgetting when workbook day is or not forgetting when the staff meeting is or what the actions you had from the last staff meeting were, then you're, you're just adding pressure onto yourself with those kind of things. So I would tell, my, I would tell me to write down as much as possible, you know, and my note-taking now is, is pretty hot um, and, it, and it makes sense to me. And I very rarely forget stuff now, you know, but I, I'd wildly overestimated just how much I was capable of. I could, I would sit in staff meetings and I would think, yes, I'll, I'll remember exactly what's happened here. And nowadays I can't remember what happened yesterday. <laughs> I was exactly the same. I, I, I just assumed that um, I'd, I'd be fine. Don't need to write stuff down or as much as other people do. What that meant was that I was entirely reliant on other people to tell me that it was World Book Day or that uh, it was my assembly or any of these other bits and pieces, which probably made me a bit of a nightmare as an NQT to support. But yeah, that's a great bit of advice. Keep yeah. going. It, it, it's a bit of a tedious one, but I don't. Th- I think personal organization can't be over, overstated. Um, and then more, I don't know, sort of ethereally, um, I would say to myself, you know, you really have to want this. You know, you're going to have a fantastic career. You are going to love almost every minute of it, you know, and you are going to feel like you're making a difference, but you're also going to have to work very hard. And so you need to really make sure that this is something you want to do. And this is something you want to put the hours in for, you know, and hundred percent, you know, what are we in year 12, year 13? And I'm I'm glad that I stuck at it when things got tough. Um, But I'd make sure that I was fully aware because 21, 22 year old me, thought that life was a bit of a breeze <laughs> and then um, it, it most definitely isn't and if and if you want to work as a teacher 
and if you want to be successful at it, I think that, um, yeah, I think it's it's worth the effort. Is that, would that be fair to say? Yeah, no, hundred percent. I think the interesting thing is that you can make an argument that some of the hardest yards that you have to go as a teacher come at you when you're probably least ready for them or least mature in terms of your ability to deal with them. At least if like me, you go into teaching in your early twenties, like I think the majority of people do. Do you want to carry on? Have you got some other bits and pieces you want to say, or shall I shall I uh, repost? No, those are my two two main ones. Um, yeah. So, what, what would you tell your younger self? I've narrowed it down to three things. I'm sure I'll think of several more later and be annoyed that I haven't mentioned them. I mean, I'd say that the first one is I would tell the younger me that other people won't be entirely determining how I teach forever. There will come a stage in your career if you get through this early difficult part where you'll be trusted based on what you understand of teaching, what you've seen, what you, you've observed to do things the way you think they should be done. Obviously, there's always a balance of that through your career. You're never entirely autonomous, but I definitely would have told myself that you will earn that autonomy over time. So it will feel very different and you will feel very different about the job once you have that autonomy. It's a whole different thing to put 55 hours a week into a job because you want to and because you're following up something you're interested in or something that's valuable to you than it is to do 55 hours or even 45 hours when a big chunk of that you feel is pointless or you feel doesn't um, address what you want to be addressed. Another thing, and it's going to sound minor, but in retrospect, I'm fairly ashamed of myself. I would tell myself not to be proud of my of the praise I get for my exemplary marking. I remember a distinct marking meeting where we all sat down with our books and we were looking at each other's, the, the quality of the marking that we did, which was basically the amount of marking that we did. And uh, I can't remember if it was the head or the deputy head or someone else showed my books to other people as an example. And in I felt so smug at the time. I probably let it show on my face, but I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm doing this right. And in retrospect, I would have realized that other people had families. Um, other people perhaps recognized that a big chunk of the marking I was doing was a waste of time. They would have been able to prioritize what they did in teaching with their teaching day better. And I, I basically would have told myself, you're not helping anyone here, least of all yourself. So yeah, trying to stand out and be and look exceptional to anyone in your early years of teaching is a bad idea. I, I'd say the final thing I'd say to myself, and this relates to why I left the, I briefly left the classroom or at least left the classroom as a, as a teacher from the front, is that in most schools that I've worked in, there is 80% of the stuff that SLT tell you to do that you need to do and that you you really have to make sure you do to a decent standard. And then there's 20% of stuff that they will tell you to do that actually they don't really care about. And knowing what that 20% of stuff is, is really hard to do. And I had I actually worked with a teacher alongside me in my first year in year six, who pointed out regularly that, no, you don't really need to do that to that standard. This is just something they say so that they can so they're happy it's just bluffing all the way down you bluff it so they can bluff it and then the person above them can bluff it and everyone's happy 
And I wish I'd listened to that person who said, don't do this, that or the other, because I tried to do all 100% of it. And that's one of the reasons why I burnt out. So yeah, being listening to people when they say to you, don't worry about that bit quite so much. Um, I, I overheard at um, a school I worked back a little while ago, so that I worked at a little while ago, um, a mentor talking to an NQT in the first few weeks where they said, look, just at the moment, focus on your English and maths. Everything's important. But when it comes to, say, your marking or the, the, the discussion you have with pupils, et cetera, for now, focus on the English and maths. And once you're comfortable with that, we can expand that out. And I remember thinking, wow, I wish someone had said that to me when I first started. I really wish someone had allowed me to, to focus on bits and then broaden what I was competent at. So yeah, that 80-20% thing, not being proud of my ex supposedly exemplary marking and telling myself that at some point I would gain some autonomy. Those would be the three things I just have to let myself know. Yeah, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, that um, Prius thing, because if you accept the positives, then you have to also accept the, um, the not-so-positives. And because I think our sense of self can be so intertwined with our role, um, that becomes very difficult because then you see it as a judgment on yourself. And so, yeah, I think a bit of distance between any feedback you get and you as a person is always a good thing. I thought of one more thing. Um, Go for it. Um, and it, it, it features a little bit in Thinking Deeply about Primary Mathematics. It's the fact that the solar system is, what, four billion years old? And so far, no bad lessons have destroyed it, you know? And I think <laughs> a little bit of perspective and thinking... Yeah, it, it might feel like the worst thing that's ever happened at the time, but actually in, in the grand scheme of things, you know, it, it you know, give yourself a break. And because, you know, obviously some things are very serious and, and will need to be addressed. But in the main, you know, if we make a mistake in a lesson, if things don't go to plan, think about it and then reflect. Think the fact that we're thinking about what went wrong, I think that's what makes the difference. And yeah, so give yourself a break is what I said to me. Yeah, knowing that it's a long haul. Uh, in fact, I'm going to add. I'm going to add one as well, if I may, which builds. I like. I like to think comfortably on that. Which is, I wish someone had said to me, "You're only in your first or second year of teacher teaching, so you will be not very good." In inevitably, you 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 just won't be very good. There'll be parts of it you might be a little bit stronger at, and you'll get better over time but you will be not very good in the same way that a 16-year-old isn't ready to play in the Premier League or in the, in the same way that a person who's been studying to be a doctor for a year and a half isn't a consultant yet. It's just inevitable that there is a long apprenticeship period and just accept that you're going to struggle and it's going to be difficult and at points you're going to have to learn loads in order to get better. I wish someone had said to me about the 10-year timeline that I think is a fairly good way of looking at what it takes to get really good at teaching. It just takes the pressure off so much to know that, okay, I'm only two years in. I'm only one year in. You see people on Twitter, actually, who talk about, oh, I've been teaching for a year and a half, and I really want to think about leadership. And I, I, get, I get where they're coming from, perhaps. It's, it's never, I've never really been driven in that same way to say, this is where I want to go. I've always just been happy to follow my interests. 
Um, I know I always thought I'd just, I would continue to be a class teacher because I love it so much and actually want to be a class teacher once again, sooner rather than later. I do bits and pieces in the classroom, but not enough at the moment. But at the same time, this idea that you need to worry about leadership after a year and a half, or you need to worry about anything in teaching after a year and a half, forget that ladder for a bit. If you can, I appreciate that there might be financial reasons why people feel the need to, et cetera, et cetera. But just try to take the pressure off and develop. Nice. So I suppose then the next question is, we want to get better. We want to develop. How do we develop the, the subject knowledge, you know, the pedagogical knowledge and the behavior management, you know, to be an effective teacher during that early career period? I think it goes without saying that the the book you talked about earlier, Walkthroughs, is a, is a great way to um, look at pedagogical knowledge. Um, I think what I'd like to briefly talk about first is the subject knowledge side of things and a few bits and pieces that teachers can start with. I think that the book uh, Mathematics Explained for Primary Teachers by Haylock is a great overview for teachers who for perhaps maths isn't their strongest suit, Perhaps they don't remember quite as much as they wish they did from their own t- from their own education. I think that's a great start. I think a book on uh, sorry a paper on reading called "Ending the Reading Wars" has so many little components in there describing what reading is, what reading fluency means, how it can be developed. You can read that over the space of a couple of hours and vastly improve your understanding of what it means for children to learn to read. I think also going back to mathematics. I feel I learned a lot from looking at the NCETM spines. I think the also the information that they've published in conjunction with the government is valuable as well. Particularly if you're saying, "Well, I'm I'm looking I'm I'm teaching in year three, what does year three look like?" Or I'm teaching in year two, what does year two place value look like? For example, I think they are that they're. I, I, I'd like to say lots and lots of things here, but if I had to pick just two or three things. I would mention those for maths and those for reading and then perhaps to an extent, give yourself a break on the other stuff. Cause obviously in those first two years of teaching, you want to be improving your subject knowledge um, and obviously the pedagogical content knowledge that goes with it. But if you focus on too much, then you might find that, or you try to focus on too much, you might find that it doesn't really pay off in the way you'd like it to. Yeah. There's, um, there's almost a burr, minimum standard in English and maths that will guarantee that pupils are able to access the next stage on. So say they leave you in year three, if you've been really concise in what and how you've explained, you know, the sort of the laws of arithmetic, you know, place value, that kind of thing, or even grammatical terms that are built on in year four and five, then that's almost what you should be aiming for. You know, almost do no harm first, is, is that what doctors say? I know that's a, that's a phrase from somewhere. Yeah, the, the, the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. Yeah. And yeah, so I, I think we should we should take that as, as teachers and because from there, that's when we can incrementally add little bits of information, you know, things about, you know, the, the concept of zero, things about, um, you know, the distributive property of multiplication over addition you know you can understand what it is initially and if you do that then you can introduce pupils to it but actually in year five and six with more time with it seeing how pupils interact with the ideas 
that's when you can have really strong subject knowledge. You know, like you said, it's not going to happen overnight. Um, and I think you almost, what is what is the very least um, that, I, that these pupils deserve? And then from there, I think we build. So I think you're absolutely right. And, and I think the NCTM spines and the supplementary materials that go around that are, are absolutely perfect um, because they are very, very clear, always very well thought through. You know, they don't release things on a whim. You know, they, they take time and they bring them out bit by bit. I mean, the spines came out over an extended period of time because they wanted to make sure they were right. And so they represent the NCTM's interpretation of primary mathematics. Um, and I think, yeah, all teachers should start there and think in a couple of years after that, you'll be able to say, well, do I agree? You know, and I think, did we talk about last week, we were talking about whether or not Haylock's interpretation of structures matches up with, um, with the NCTMs. But that's a conversation you're having with yourself when you're seven years in and you have automatized how you teach those fundamentals, I think. So I think you're you're absolutely right. Um, and I think then, one of the reasons... Oh, sorry. I think one of the reasons why I'm automatically attracted towards saying, look at this in mathematics is because it's such a, a hierarchical subject. You know, you miss out some key components in year one or year two, or you, you don't understand them particularly well, so you don't teach them particularly well. I think that's going to cause more struggles for children down the line. I think they're more resilient than we give them credit for, but I think that's going to cause struggles down the line in a way that it perhaps doesn't if, for example, you're teaching year three history and your understanding of the ancient Greeks isn't quite as strong as it could have been. You can still take in, you can still understand and grasp and link things together when you later learn about the Romans and the Tudors and the Civil War or whatever it is, is on, that's on your history curriculum. I think in those subjects where there is that slightly more hierarchical nature, where things are building up stage by stage and are strongly dependent on what's come before, that those are the subjects where you really want to make sure that early days if you've got the time to do it to um to improve your subject knowledge that this is where you're focusing for the same reason i would say um that if you are a teacher in a reception or year one or year two i would absolutely be thinking about do i understand phonics as well as i can do um, there are free books by stephen parker which are really good. You can find fantastic information there. There's a, a videos called teaching your child to read, uh, which are on, I think it's pronounced Udemy, which is a professional learning platform. These videos are by John Walker, uh, John Walker of the sounds right phonics program. The amount of subject knowledge that you can gain about how children learn to read about the basics of phonics from that is um, invaluable, highly recommended. And in, in terms of pedagogical content knowledge, what would your advice for teachers who want to develop that be? I'm, I'm going to describe, I'm going to be a bit controversial here. Uh, obviously, we've talked about walkthroughs. I'm going to talk about, in particular, why I think a really famous and valuable book is perhaps not the place to start. So it's a bit of negative advice in some, in some cases. I Having dived into and in parts, fallen in love with Teach Like a Champion, I think back to me as an NQT, and I think I would have needed some real guidance in how to use that book. I would have needed to have been told, look at this bit, just look at this bit, ignore this bit for a while, you're not ready for that, et cetera, et cetera. So if you are a early or an early careers teacher, or if you're someone supporting an early careers teacher, if you're going to use something that is in the long term so valuable as Teach Like a Champion, I think you need to be warned that it's something that comes with 
it, it needs a bit of advice involved. It comes with a warning label in terms of how it can be used. I don't think I'd be the only one who would admit to being or to thinking that I'd be overwhelmed as an NQT by that book. There's just so much. And again, it's because it's so rich. It's an incredibly rich book. So yeah, I, I think that's one to keep an eye for. I do think that something like walkthroughs or obvious stuff like Rosenshine's Principles of Instruction. I think it's easy. People often say, oh, that's the basics. I learned that stuff. I knew that stuff. I didn't need Rosenshine's. Like, well, you, but you're not uh, an early careers teacher. Maybe you're taking this stuff for granted a little bit. What about you? Is there anything, I mean, obviously you've already mentioned walkthroughs. Is there anything else that kind of jumps out at you? And you'd imagine that Tom was paying us for every time you <laughs> mentioned walkthroughs. That is a good point. That is that is a good point. I mean, he is, obviously. So I think on your on your point about Teach Like a Champion, and where I've seen it used really well, schools make it a part of their CPD for teachers. And so it's built into how things are done and how... People are sort of taught about the about the craft of teaching, you know, and I think anything in isolation is going to be of very little use. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point. I, I, when I say, I, I think there are certain books you, but I do think there are certain books you can pick up as um, an early careers teacher and just, just run with it. Uh, and I don't think Teach Like a Champion is one of those, but I think you're dead right. Used as part of a back and forth bit of mentoring, quality professional coaching yeah i i it, it could obviously be hugely valuable i just don't think it's something that a, an early careers teacher should pick up on their own and try and implement large swathes of it i think i think if it, you it needs a bit of guidance at, at least that's just my that's my view on it no and then there was definitely a chat on twitter and that, that seemed to be the general consensus about um you know it was it was about how people used it rather than like you said there, there are lots of books that you can just you know, in fact, we're, we're, I think we're, we're spoiled with how many books there are that teachers can just pick up and, and sort of develop their craft, you know, in their own time, you know. Um, but I, when, when I'm thinking about myself, and so I was, I was talking about how I was reading Marx, and like I have, I have no background reading in, you know, in critical theory or anything like that there. And so whenever I'm reading something new, I spend a lot of time, you know, in, in great detail going through the things that I have never heard of before. And I can imagine that, when you're reading about teaching the way a lot of us are now, it can be quite similar. And so it's a case of you read something and you get a little bit from it. And then you read something in a similar area, you know, perhaps maybe some of the source material and you get a little bit more and then you use it in your practice. You try things out and then it's only with, and I suppose it's a lot like the subject knowledge as well, you know, piece by piece you are building your schema of what effective teaching looks like in the classroom and i think when when we're thinking about pedagogical content knowledge it's very much a case of relating what you read to what you've done what you've tried out in your context but also building it up over a long period of time like when lloyd and i were reading about evolution and evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology for our storytelling research at the very start of that, we had no idea what some of those those papers were about. And it was only after, you know, maybe four or five months of reading lots of little papers and lots of bits of papers that we could start tying things together. And, and I know it's a really extreme example because not everybody goes off to learn about storytelling because of something they read in a in a book once. And but I, I think it equates to how the, the access we have to high quality and texts on the craft of teaching. 
And so that, that's my, that would be my interpretation. My advice for people is to expect the jigsaw to build up over time, you know, and start with the edges and then gradually get into the middle. And then when you're in the middle, that's when it's time to start reading around this, the, the craft with really rich, high quality texts that aren't necessarily specific to, to pedagogy and education. It's interesting you should say there about the your experience of academic texts when you were researching things relating to evolutionary biology. I think the nature of, and it's perhaps because you mentioned critical theory that this kind of jumped out at me. But I think one of the big problems with academic texts is that it's when you're unfamiliar with an area, it's almost impossible to know whether a text is just beyond your comprehension because there are layers to it and language involved in it that you it's just it's just too high higher tariff for you to deal with at this at this moment and that you'll get it over time or whether it's just gobbledygook written in an intentionally uh, um, opaque fashion for example i've read a bit recently about uh, legitimation code theory and i've no idea it could be one or the other I'll admit I'm leaning towards the gobbledygook side of things, or not gobbledygook, but intentionally opaque in order to avoid scrutiny side of things right now. But I could be totally wrong and without really um, investing what looks like 50 to 60 hours of time minimum, there's no real way for me to know either way. But yeah, that is the problem with academic papers. You can find out down the line when you've put the effort in, it's like, oh no, this, this really was just rubbish. Or, oh no, really, this has a great deal of value to it. And um, I'm glad I put the effort in. Yeah, I think, because there's definitely a school of thought that there are, we're almost reaching saturation in terms of edgy books. But I think reading the same thing from slightly different angles can be helpful. Those books help us to avoid having to read gobbledygook papers because they will distill, you know, the, the bulk of the research, you know, the, the really well-written ones do. And so, so I do think there's a there, there's a place for, you know, lots of interpretations, but that, that may just be my opinion. So the bit we haven't mentioned is behaviour management. I haven't got a huge amount to say about that, despite its importance to early careers teachers. I would say that there is a little book out there called the Behaviour Management Pocketbook. You can pick it up brand new for five or six quid. You can read it in 20 minutes. It's by Peter Hook. I saw him uh, give a professional development course in my NQT year, and it was astonishingly useful. It was the most useful CPD I've probably ever had. It helped me to, de- to uh, deal with students in a assert- sorry, an assertive, respectful fashion. I can't recommend it highly enough. Even if you think, as an early careers teacher, oh, I'm, I'm pretty solid with behavior management, buy it for that first time that you come across a student that you don't know how to deal with it's yeah it's wonderful and i've t- i've gone back to that book over and over and over it's in bits in because it's so valuable uh, what about you is there anything in particular that either a book or just recommendations generally with regards to behavior management so i think it goes back to what we said to start about it you know trying to reduce the number of things that you can feel that you're not doing very well i think when you've got lots of stuff on your plate, having a class that aren't necessarily as settled as they could be, you know, and whether that be through their sort of composition or through your own behavior management strategies, I think 
that's something you don't need to deal with because that can send you over the edge. That can send you towards, you know, a tipping point in terms of, do I want to do this job anymore? And, and so I always say the first thing you need to get down is your behavior management strategies. You know, you, you need to focus on behavior management and those sort of fundamental strategies that will build an environment of mutual respect and, you know, where pupils know where the line is. And they also want the social norms to be, this is how we behave in this class, you know, because, you know, these expectations are both reasonable and achievable. And, and so before I came across Tom Bennett's work, a lot of the strategies I learned at the start of my career would have been those that, um, that he would sort of promote, you know, where you're being stern but fur, you know, being consistent and, um, you know, the things that make a real difference in the classroom. Um, and so I always point people towards the work he's done with the DFE. And obviously most recently he's got a new book and, you know, running the room. And because I think that he does a very good job of cutting through what's not useful and making things really clear. And in my experience, the strategies he talks about are very, very useful. You know, I still use them to this day. And so, yeah, that, that's where I would go. Um, perhaps starting with the posters um, and sort of the, the materials made available um, by the DFE. But I also think that you need the school to be on board and then you need to be on board with however the school has decided they're going to sort of approach the behavior of their pupils, you know, and, and hopefully new teachers get the, the kind of school that deserves them, you know, where they look after their teachers and their pupils in equal measure. And um, because if those systems aren't in place, then it can be a very, very difficult place to be, you know, and there, there's absolutely no hope of developing your mathematical, you know, pedagogy or subject knowledge, because all of your time will be focused on, on managing classes, which, um, which can be, which could be managed better. And, um, yeah, so hopefully that's fair to say, but I, I would definitely, you know, I think Tom Bennett is very good on behavior management. He makes things very clear. Um, and it also aligns with how I've sort of independently been developed over the over the course of my career. I think the general rule, if I had to pick one of the behavior of like the advice I've been given over the years with regards to behavior management, and something that rings true or has rung true through my career in a variety of schools, is this idea that you do need consequences in place for certain actions that um, children will bring to the classroom, often just because they're testing the boundaries, just they want to see how far they can push things, etc. But those, bound, those consequences and those boundaries only go so far. What they do is they effectively stop a certain kind of behavior, which sounds perfect. It sounds like, oh, job done. But it isn't job done. It really is just that's the first, that's the bit that allows you to then do your job with regards to supporting children's behavior. That's the thing that allows you to begin to build a relationship with, um, with a child. I remember in my first year of teaching, there was uh, a lad who, desperate attention seeker, he was a great kid, great kid, but disrupted every lesson I had when I, when I first worked with him. And it was actually about the things I learned on this course, things I learned of the behavior from the behavior management pocketbook. It was this idea that, yeah, the consequences are going to help you to stop him on a given day. 
effectively, stop him from disrupting your lesson, but they're not going to change it for the long term. All they're going to do is they're going to provide you the space and the room for you to start looking at the underlying motivations for why it is he's disrupting your lesson. And in some cases, it was just because he fancied it. But in other cases, it was because he struggled for um, as part of his friendship group. He'd, he'd come to the school relatively recently. He'd desperately trying to, to kind of fit in. And the way he fit, got a bit of attention and fitted in was by being quite annoying in a classroom, frank, frankly. Once the boundaries were in place that stopped him doing that, finding ways to address that underlying motivation behind his behavior then allowed me to kind of help him for the longer term allowed I like to think help him to make a decent transition into secondary school um I can't say I've read a lot of Tom Bennett um at all but from what I've heard from people online I'd be very surprised if he isn't big on those two equally important facets of behavior management the importance of um there being boundaries but also the need to support children when it comes to relationships. Yeah. And I, th I think it's very easy to only get certain headlines and, and get, you know, a, a small picture of the, of, of what behavior management is, you know, and I'm, I'm coming at it from my perspective where I definitely thought in my first year that I could be their children's friend and their teacher at the same time, you know? And so that's where I'm coming from in terms of the, this is the kind of, Thing you need to be reading because you very quickly realize that being supportive of pupils being there for them also means being the person who's responsible for the welfare of the class at the same time you know so it's not necessarily you know i think the certainty of consequences rather than the severity and all those are they're very important messages and um, but it, it is very much that establishment of you know who we are and what we do so that then when you've got pupils who really do struggle then you can find systems, like you said, to meet any needs that might be there. And, you know, and I, I think it, it almost, it takes, because it's, it's such a complex picture that you need to think again, what's the, what's the base level? You know, what do I need to do? Because I know that I didn't do it in September, 2008 or whatever it was. And, you know, this is who I am in the class. This is the minimum I expect from behavior because, you know, it, it's that, um, you know what you permit you you tolerate or something perhaps yeah, what you, what you uh, yeah what you permit you promote yeah yeah I, i've exactly. got a lot of time for that as an expression and then after that you can you know because i think to get to pupils you know for instance say they've had really difficult and um, difficult childhoods really complex home lives you know i think it's only after again with everything after years of experience reference points to think back to that you can really fully be there for them and um, in the way they need and that's where schools who are supportive of their teachers and their pupils will have someone more expert than you able to take that up but i think in at, at the very least we need to make sure we're doing our end of the deal you know so that those systems can be the most fruitful because if for instance in my experience if i had been the cause of you know someone rest and um, then you're getting flashpoints all the time because the you know the minimum sort of behavior management strategies aren't in place. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and yeah, and I think when you don't need to escalate situations all the time because those sort of fundamentals are in place, then I think you can help those pupils with real sort of complex needs. Yeah, I, I possibly haven't done a really good job of explaining that. 
just the things are complex. Focus on the small yeah. stuff first. It's, it's yeah, them. it's it's such a complex picture when you're, as you say, one. If just to end this section, if I may, just one thing I'd like to little bit of a callback to something I've mentioned before in previous podcasts where I talked about the importance of acting. Uh, if if I had to give one tip that kind of combines what you're talking about before about not being not not thinking that you need to be the, the a friend you you've got a different role there it's that when i started teaching i thought that it was really important for the children to like me i i don't think that's the case i'm not i don't tend to end up particularly unpopular i end up with all the same world's best teacher mugs and all that stuff but i don't think it's actually that important to you don't need to worry about whether the children will like you what you do need to worry about is whether they think you like them. And I don't mean you're trying to ingratiate yourself with them, but they have to think that you are glad to be there. They have to think that you like them as people and that when they mess up or when they do something wrong, that you're disappointed because fundamentally you like them in the same way you'd be dis- in the same way that you would be disappointed with someone that you respected. And that's, yeah, sorry. I know, again, I know that seems very gentle, perhaps a bit softer than other people would consider ideal for behavior management. But I do, I do think that's a big deal. Then the kids thinking that you like them, you, you never fail to win them over, over the long term, if you've got that and decent boundaries in place as a combination. Yeah, I'm with you. Okay, so, um, that brings us on, I think, quite nicely to our final question. And, and I guess this ties together relatively briefly a lot of the stuff that we've talked about also so far, which is how can schools better support early careers teachers? So I think it's probably fair to say that the, the way teachers are developed isn't necessarily equal across all schools. And I think that... Some teachers improve quite rapidly and for a sustained amount of time, and others don't. And and whether or not we know the reasons why, I think there are certain things we know about teacher development that we can make sure are the building blocks of what we do in school. So I think we've talked about most of them already. We need to know that, well, the teachers need to know that they have the time to develop. You know, it's there's no one expecting anyone to be the, the perfect teacher, you know, after one, two, three years, let alone in October of uh, of term one or term two of your career. And um, so we get the time. I think we're focused and, um, you know, being really explicit about what it is we need to develop and how we can do that. I think high quality models, whether that be from someone more expert, from colleagues, you know, using that shared knowledge that we have across the profession, you know, I think I always say, even in a one form entry school, the head teacher will have been a really good teacher at some point. You know, even if they're doing administrative stuff now, they they will know their craft, you know, to get into that position. And so they'll be there to support. And then I think it is about having the resolve to know that you are doing the right thing for your teachers. You know, and I think it's it's almost a summary of the chat I did for maths conference. But those essentially are the fundamentals, I think, you know, because if we give our teachers time and if we are focused and detailed, then we give them the room to improve and the capacity as well. 
So I think that that's it. Room if I had to nail two, those would be the two. Yeah, I, you've you've taken a couple that I, would, I was I intended to mention, which is good because it will shut me up quicker. I would say an absolute thing that you have to focus on for me with early careers teachers is workload. Keep an eye on workload. Make sure they are prioritizing the right things. And then if you think they're doing a decent job and they're working more than 50 hours a week and find a way to get it below 50 hours a week. Because even if you think, oh, well, they're early careers teachers, they should work long hours, yada, yada, yada. We want them to stay in the profession. Key message if I had to pick one thing that you should take away from this podcast, from my side of things at least, is that early careers teachers need to protect their enthusiasm. And our job as those who support early careers teachers is we need to protect their enthusiasm on their behalf as well. And workload is an essential component of that. I think planning is a big deal. I think teachers need to be supported with planning. If you're in a one-form entry, then give them last year's planning. If you can't give them last year's planning in a one-form entry, then find a way to get someone to support them somehow. If you're not in a one-form entry, then make sure that those planning meetings aren't just, well, the, you know, the early careers teacher will plan the English and I'll plan the maths and then we'll switch. Try and plan together if at all possible. As we said earlier, depressurizing things, letting teachers know that it is about the long term. You mentioned that much more eloquently than I could. And this is going to sound like an odd one, but... I remember in my first year of teaching that I got ill and I didn't take the day off. And that was a real struggle for me because I wasn't, I was really unwell and I still biked to work and I don't know how I got through the day. Um, I nearly collapsed on the way home. And I remember after my second year of teaching, I remember thinking how great it would have been if someone had just prepared and provided some kind of illness cover pack, which is a, we've got an early careers teacher. They aren't necessarily in a place where their planning can be read by other people, even if it's been shared with a part, with a partner teacher, et cetera. And just being able to say, don't worry about it. Don't get up at 7.30 and email something in. You just get better. We've got a day's worth of one-off planning in maths, in English, et cetera, that we can give to your class. So we can give to a supply teacher or HLTA or whoever's covering your class. You concentrate on getting better. Obviously, that's not going to work if, as in my second year of teaching, you get swine flu and you're off for a week and a half. But for those odd days that are down to cold or whatever it might be, I think being able to say to to a teacher no you just take the day we'll worry about it on our end is massive it's absolutely massive so maybe having something in place for those early careers teachers if you can manage it is really valuable that about wraps up how we can support early career teachers we do have one question from the audience which i think could probably become an episode in itself um, and i'll explain a little bit a question that i've had quite a few times whether it be through private message or in public is about which textbook should I buy into? Um, and this may become just me talking about textbooks, um, but I, I'll sort of, I'll approach the question and then obviously if you want to jump in. Um, so I think when you're thinking about buying a textbook, in England for certain, it is a massive investment, both financially and in terms of the education you want to provide. And I think because there's such a, 
a spread of choice. And it's very difficult to assign a value of high quality outside of context. I think it's very important that we do the groundwork on what it is we imagine teaching and learning to look like in our school and then what we have on offer from textbook providers. Because I know I mentioned briefly in a video that I'm maybe a bit thinking deeply that textbooks will always often come with a pedagogic model. You know, whether you're in Texas or Venezuela or anywhere in the UK, you know, there will be a certain model and it will come to define how you teach. It will come to define how mathematics is in your school. And so I think you cannot underestimate how much legwork there is. And I think it's the responsibility of subject leaders to put in the hard yards and decide what it is they imagine maths to look like in their school. And if there's a textbook, high quality or otherwise, that can help them achieve that. And so I don't know if that makes sense, Chris, or if there's anything. Yeah, it does. It does. I mean, I mean, I'm tempted to uh, put you in a very difficult position by saying okay now 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 pick one textbook to really slag off but i don't think you want to do that i've got one in the back of my mind that i'm not a fan of because of the pitch in certain levels but i'm 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 not it wasn't all bad in my experience of it it actually taught me some new things um using it but yeah i i, I don't think it's possible just to say go for this textbook or go for that one. I know that you've worked with um, a particular brand company that you're quite a fan of. Um, I've looked at that one as well. And I, I think it makes a lot of sense. It looks to be really high quality, but in the end you have to think about things about how, like how are you going to roll it out? Like the textbook company that I worked with in the past, we effectively were advised to, to roll it out slowly. So start in year one, then roll it up to year one and two, then one, two, three, et cetera. That's, that's part of the conversation. Exact. How are you going to implement it? Are you in it for the long term? But then one of my favorite things to say is that most decent changes that you make in a school, the most important changes that you make in a school or try to make in a school, you won't see the payoff for, of them for several years. You can have quick wins, but that's not where the real real value is. And, and textbooks are exactly the same. If you're thinking, oh, I'm going to roll this out and then next year we'll see a boost in maths results and that's going to help me get a job somewhere else, then think again. That's just not how it works. Yeah. And I think between the both of us, we have summarized the advice I've given to you know anyone who's asked. And I think hopefully the reason I've included this is, is if there's anyone thinking about textbooks and their quality and on which they should choose i think you know between the two of us we've sort of come to my advice for anyone who is thinking that way one thing to quickly mention alongside that is i would consider myself um someone who was very much open to the idea of textbooks generally though you do find people who say nope don't want to use them for anything think they are uh, constrictive i don't see it that way i, I it's it, it, it completely depends on the quality of the textbook. It completely depends on how carefully it's been put together, the professional development that it um, requires of teachers and how that's supported, etc. So, yeah, I would say both of us are on the uh, end of the spectrum where we'd say that 
textbooks could potentially be a very good thing. So this very much isn't a anti-textbook position from either of us, I suspect. Yeah. And on that bombshell, <laughs> it's, it's been an absolute pleasure as always, Chris. Yeah, loved it. Really, really enjoyed it. Thanks again, Kieran. And so we'll be back the same time next week. Until then, thank you very much for listening. And we'll see you soon. Bye.